This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is October 14th, 2021. On today's program, we continue on our path to COP26 with a look at climate change through the lens of action. What can investors do to turn their portfolios a darker shade of green? Is divestment the answer, or has engagement proven a more powerful tool? For answers to these questions, we mined some highlights from a recent conversation. A few weeks ago, Henry Fernandez, MSCI's chairman and chief executive officer, sat down with Chris Aylman, the chief investment officer at the California State Teachers Retirement System, better known as CalSTRS. Chris has held this position for 21 years this month, and he oversees a portfolio that, as of the end of August, was valued at more than $318 billion. We begin our eavesdropping with a topic we know is near and dear to Henry's heart, the vital role that capital can play when it comes to addressing climate change. So Chris, in the context of that, you know, many leaders and many members of our society around the world point to government officials, regulators, the energy industry, technology companies, renewable energy companies as the solution to the climate change problem. But seldom do they talk about the role of capital and the role of investors in creating that solution. So what can you say to them as to the important role of capital and what it plays in the transformation of the economy? Well, and Henry, it's interesting. It's sort of the chicken and the egg, which comes first. I'll use a a film analogy of, of build it and they will come. I have been told many times that if we build it, then everybody will follow. As an investor, though, we typically follow the trends. We need government regulation without question around the world, not in the USA alone, but around the world. And so the government leaders need to lead out, but industry needs to lead and make the change. Investors have a huge role because you're talking about trillions of dollars that's needed in this, I'll call it overall energy transition. Some of that will be to new technologies and things we're not even talking about today, um, but there'll be huge opportunities. So there's a, the world's awash with capital. I mean, you see it with not just pension plans, but mostly the sovereign wealth funds. There's plenty of capital chasing good ideas. Um, and I think investors will be eager to, to take up and, and invest in cutting edge areas where there's a lot of risk, but they'll want return. But then especially at some of the longer returning, lower returning infrastructure type things, that will need to be put into place to transition to a smarter grid, better energy, better transportation options. Sovereign wealth funds and pension plans have a huge appetite for for long-term stable returns. So we're perfect for financing that kind of thing. And I think it's just a matter of of creating the opportunity, getting the regulations right. And then I think that capital will come in 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 huge ways. So I have often said that the uh, investment industry needs to play a role equal to, or perhaps more important than the role of the energy industry in the transformation to a net zero world. Do you think that's an exaggeration or you think that these two industries have that equal amount of influence in the transformation that needs to take place? 
you're right. Uh, in some ways, um, I, I think we have the capital to fund new ideas, to fund projects that banks might not, frankly, be willing to. And, and let's face it, uh, in that middle debt market, uh, the banks have really had to step away. So we do have a really critical play. Now, I think the other side, though, is the energy companies are absolutely huge. Um, and let's face it, the, the vast majority of energy is privately held uh, by, uh, well, not privately, but by, by countries. And so we need the, the few publicly traded energy companies to really be the ones that lead this transition. And they may be part of the solution because there's no question we're going to need ca- uh, carbon capture of some sort. And then we're going to find a place to put it, which is not dumping it in the sea, but probably pumping it back underground. So I think they're huge because they can, on one hand, block this process and slow it down, sadly, as they have done, or they can wake up and then actually lead the transition. Investors will play a critical role in getting the companies to do that, but then also financing that new future. I'm sure no one is shocked to hear Chris's reference to energy companies right now. That, that's not the last time we'll hear about this sector today. And that's not just because we're talking about climate change. Calsters lent their support to Engine Number no. 1, an impact investment group, earlier this year. Specifically, Engine Number no. 1's efforts, successful efforts, at the ExxonMobil shareholder meeting this year. They put forward an alternate slate of directors for Exxon's board. But as I said, more on that later. Let's return to the conversation, picking it up, with pooled investments. A lot of our investment institutional clients point to the pooled nature of their investments as an impediment for them to affect change in their portfolios as it relates to uh, the climate threat. This is especially true with endowments because they tend to invest much more in pooled vehicles than sometimes the pension funds, which have a lot of separately managed accounts. So is that an excuse? Uh, And secondly, is uh, what are some of your thoughts as to how pension funds like Coster's are able to influence those managers to do so, those pool uh, vehicles to uh, be able to to engage in a transition to net zero? Henry, a twofold answer to that. You know, as direct owners of assets, you obviously have a lot more pull and you have much more ability to influence change and make the owners of a company, the board of a company, or a physical asset pay attention. But it's not an excuse just because it's a pooled vehicle, because good grief, we're seeing pooled vehicles in every kinds of shape and size and index. You alone produce a zillion indexes. So if somebody wants a pooled vehicle that is paying attention to climate change or reduced carbon exposure or uh, focuses in on one change opportunity, they can take advantage of it. Uh, the endowment world does a lot of direct investing with in, in venture capital and private equity. And while right now most of that's been focused in on tech and these great unicorns, I think we're going to need tremendous technology change coming up in the future. Uh, and that's going to bring some unique opportunities for them to invest in smarter grids, uh, better energy sources. Wind and solar are great and can fuel us, but they're intermittent. And so you need some kind of a consistent substitute for uh, oil and natural gas, particularly in the energy grid. Maybe that's hydrogen, maybe that's something else, 
but those would be the kind of technology investments that would be pooled in a partnership, but, but they could easily make those kinds of investments. So I think people have to really look at their pooled investments and they get to choose which pool and how, what's their benchmark uh, and they can make some changes in that. So uh, it's not an excuse. It's just a different vehicle and a different, a different structure, say. It's harder for them to engage, no question about it, when they're in a pool. Yeah, so a lot of our advice and counsel, especially the endowments, uh, is that we recognize that the best managers can be very selective as to who they want to take as their investors. But that should not be an excuse not to bring up the topic about the carbonization of the portfolio that they're invested in. Because at the end of the day, it is the investor that is going to be holding the bag if those portfolios don't do well. Uh, it's just a question of how you approach the topic. So turning our attention to banks, I recently uh, spoke at a, at a group of uh, senior bankers from one of the, you know, the largest banks in the world. And I was uh, telling them that they should refuse to take a, pub- a company public or do a bond offering if the company hasn't yet made a pledge to net zero, or they should refuse to uh, engage in certain other you know, lending activities that will lead to a highly carbonizing uh, outcome. It's very challenging for them because their answer is, if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. Right? That's the usual answer. But anyhow, what advice will you give those banks as to how they should go about managing that exposure? Uh, be very loud and clear is that we're an equity owner in all those banks, uh, and we want them to have a cleaner book of business. Uh, they don't want to be stuck with legacy assets that might have a very volatile pricing uh, or be regulated out of use. So uh, they have to pay attention to it. And some of them are willing to take bold stands because they realize their brand and their client uh, want it that way. So we're going to be loud as equity owners in those banks. We're also going to compete with them in terms of the loans and the direct loans. And I think they have to recognize, again, this is a mega trend. This is going to happen over at least 15 to 20 years. I'm not going to go out to the 30. It's got to be almost finished by the time we get out to, to say, 20, 25 years from now. While they look at it now as somebody else will take the business, uh, I would not be surprised within five years that their attitude would change to, oh, let them take the business. We don't want that kind of business uh, because it's not good for our company, not good for our book. We want to be focused in, in other areas that have better legs. Five years is not a very long time in the investment world generally, but when it comes to climate change, that can feel like forever. So Henry and Chris next turn to the subject of the two main paths that are available to investors today, divestment and engagement. You have been very vocal uh, and a strong critic of using divestment as a tool in the investment uh, industry. I think you even tweeted back in December something like divestment has not solved a social problem in 25 years. So what do you say to those activists, you know, climate activists, for example, uh, some other investment uh, organizations that are using divestment as a strategy? It's been a hot debate. Uh, That comment is one of the many that pushed me off Twitter. Uh, Henry, I would say divestment is an investment decision. You know, you just means you're going to sell. If you really believe something's not going to do well, then short it. It's an investment decision. Don't just sell it. It's the issue that people think divestment it brings about social change, that you can starve a company or an industry of capital. And I said earlier, the world's awash with capital. People will chase all kinds of transactions. 
Um, and it, I've had really good debates with people going back to South Africa. So let's go all the way back to, to 1986. Calster's divest of, of banks and businesses doing business in South Africa. Not until 1991 and early 92 does apartheid end. And we all agree that's a good outcome, a great outcome. But in between, there's sports boycotts, there's banking boycotts. The whole world gangs up on South Africa. And that was huge. Is divestment the causation or just a, a, a common event that links it? We don't reinvest into South Africa until 1994, 95, well after apartheid's ended when they're needing capital. So, and even if that was a, a material impact back then, that was for the 1980s. This is the 2020s where we suddenly have massive sovereign wealth funds that are 10 times our size. So, you know, frankly, if, if divestment would solve climate change, I'd be all over it. That would be great. What a simple solution. Uh, the problem is, if you don't like U.S. and, and public oil companies, you're going to hand the world over to Iran, Venezuela, Russia, the, the sovereign countries that have tons of oil, uh, the Middle East, and, and they're not going to care as much. So it, it needs a comprehensive solution. This is a giant problem. Calsters, I'm sad to say, is kind of the poster child of divestment. We've divested from six different areas. We're now at the point where we've broken even on two of them, but otherwise we had lost money in every one. And part of the challenge has been none of them brought about any social change because they weren't a social decision. They were an investment decision. And, you know, Henry, when I've seen, and, and we'll talk about firearms, a really passionate area for our teachers and for our board, uh, we had engaged Dick Sporting Goods for years on firearms. Uh, but when the students at Stoneman Majority started tweeting and, and personally went after the CEO, it's social change that really has brought about attention. That CEO paid attention right away uh, and made a bold decision. And I think it's much better for the company because of it. So it's a question of, I'm all for social change. What's the best tool to bring it about? If there were better financial tools, I'd be all in favor. But, you know, I'm a trust fund. I have to make investment decisions. The rules are pretty clear. We have to care about return first. We're not about trying to bring about social change. I got to earn 7%. If it brings about social change, that's a side benefit. That's great. But I just haven't seen it. Yeah, and in this world, as you mentioned before, of abundant capital from all sources in the world, from all walks of life, it's hard to believe that if one entity divests, somebody else is not going to come in and take their shoes, uh, fill their shoes in that uh, investment. And also in this highly interconnected, highly interdependent world, you know, it's no longer that if something happens uh, in South Africa in which you're divesting uh, from and there's no impact in the rest of the world, there is impact now all over. Countries are much closer together and the like. So uh, I'm like you. I don't think divestment is a choice. Uh, it's not going to bring about change. Uh, Henry, I, I often use an analogy. You know, I love analogies. Uh, and I tell the teachers, like, if you don't like the school board and your school district and their curriculum, you're going to write letters. You're going to go to the school board meetings and complain. Uh, you might even go so far as to run against the school board uh, and to try to bring about change and you'll get their attention. If you're mad and you sell your house and you move to another school district, you're going to sell your house at the market. 
Uh, you're going to sell it to somebody else who may not even care about that board. And the school board doesn't care at all because you're gone. Um, did you solve a problem? You made an de investment decision, but did you solve a problem? So I, I try to share that. Sometimes it resonates with the teachers and others uh, to understand, you know, there's a big difference between the capital markets and trying to affect social change. Well, that's a good segue into engagement. So if it's not divestment, it's engagement. And uh, let's talk about ExxonMobil. I told you we'd get there. So back in December, you made an announcement that you were going to support the uh, slate of uh, independent directors proposed by engine number one uh, to the Exxon board. And in the spring, three of uh, those board members were installed at uh, ExxonMobil. So uh, can you share with us a little bit about that process and what were some of the surprises? What were some of the uh, negatives you know, that came out of that? It was a great experience, I have to say. You know, we've been at corporate governance since the late 80s. We have been a, a, a steady but fairly quiet. Uh, we've only done a couple of very, say, public or, or taken on a company and confronted them. We prefer to talk offline outside the boardroom uh, and have a dialogue as long-term owners. And we've talked to many CEOs and help explain who we are. Uh, but this was the first time we were willing to really step up to what I'll call active shareholder to be activism. So not an activist manager, but because we're going to own this company for a long, long time. And I had kind of thrown in the towel on Exxon. I was so disgusted with their board and their CEO over the past couple of years, the way they have just been obviously subterfusing climate change and pushing out misinformation. It was very frustrating. So I was eager to see when our staff brought the opportunity to team up with somebody to take them on. Uh, and we really debated whether to join them or to just team up with them. And the decision was team up with them, let them go first. Uh, and it was a new firm. So that was a big risk. Uh, and believe me, there was a lot of hand wringing going on, not just within the staff, but within the board and lots of dialogue. The hill looked giant in front of us. Uh, I have to admit, one of my analogies with the staff was, you know, I said, hey, you know, we've been climbing the local hills for years and we're really good at that. But now you want to take up mountaineering. And the first hill you want to climb or mountain you want to climb is Everest. Uh, I remember, uh, I think it was in about March, uh, getting a chance to be on CNBC. And David Faber just blew us off like, well, that's never going to happen. And I was able to cut him off and say, oh, just wait and see. Just watch. Don't throw us out yet. Um, and I said, you know, the, the lessons learned was uh, really good discussions with institutional investors. You know, the bottom line is in any public company in America, it's going to be the big three, BlackRock, uh, SSGA, and uh, Vanguard. And really having a good dialogue with them. With two of them, we have long, deep relationships. We know their staff personally. You know, the corporate governance world isn't that big. A lot of the investor relations people know the corporate governance people and everybody talks and, and it's, you know, they've been in the business a long time. So that was really fun to have those long dialogues about why we were supporting it. What was our view? We weren't proxy solicitors. We were just expressing our point of view. But on the other hand, I would say a really interesting lesson learned was how uh, Engine One really went after this from a technology standpoint, a huge voting block were the Exxon retirees. Uh, and they really figured out actually how to approach them through technology uh, and not just do, you know, sidebar ads on different pages, but 
Um, I'm told that in technology, if you get you know in, in and close above a half a percent to one percent click through, that's huge. You know, they were up in the seven eight percent where where retirees were listening to their message and and paying attention to the change. So. Yes, we were surprised to be uh, so successful. Our phones went crazy when Exxon suddenly froze, didn't end, but froze the uh, general meeting, um, the annual meeting. Uh, And it was clear they were calling institutional investors, begging them to change their vote, which outraged many people. But then finally, toward the end of the day, um, you know, it finally came out that we had one and then two. And then later when the count went through, we had three board members. And you look at the dialogue of ExxonMobil from that date to now, and it's completely changed. Just dramatic, uh, what they're talking about and where they're going. So uh, now the hard work begins. Now that board really does need to change that company from the top down, because it's sure clear to us that from the bottom up in that company, you know, it was just drill, baby, drill, and we don't care, and, and we're going to push everybody out. They got to completely change that attitude and look at this differently. Um, and that's going to be hard, but we think it's absolutely critical. They're the, they're the leading U.S. oil and gas firm. They've got to lead the change. Total, Shell, Shell, BP, Chevron, they've all got to change what they do. They have to be our solution, not our problem. So we cannot commend you enough for that leadership. And, uh, and it was about time that somebody would step up and, as you said, try to climb uh, Mount Everest as opposed to the local hills. And uh, climb, you did. Uh, it was an uh, enormous achievement. So the question now that you have put the whole corporate world on notice that something like this could happen, what is next? Uh, is this a one-off or you think that this is the beginning of a series of activist campaigns in which uh, selectively uh, casters will be involved in? It's not a one-off. I think what we proved, Henry, is that, that being an activist shareholder as a tool in your toolkit is important and it works. And like you said, it put corporate CEOs on notice of like, hey, to me, the biggest message was start listening to your shareholders. Let some of your board members talk to the shareholders. Listen to what they want. You yourself have had to deal with an activist investor. And the most important thing is all those long-term stable investors listening to you and management of what's the vision. Uh, because suddenly, you know, somebody else comes in and proposes new ideas. Is that really good for the long term? Uh, I tell CEOs, we're going to own their company as long as they're public school teachers in California. That's a long time. We're going to outlive most CEOs. So it really, I think for us is not that there's another one right away. Uh, We're going to use this as a tool in the future. We're not afraid to take it on. And we showed other institutional investors uh, that when we team up, we can be a powerful way for change. Um, but it's got to be, you know, and there are companies that, that don't use their capital allocation. They waste their, their earnings. Um, and CEOs who just don't think long-term, those are the companies that are at risk because we want them to change the way they operate and they think long-term. And so they're not immune. They're, that Hopefully that's the message. As Chris mentioned earlier, Calsters is a trust fund and he has to consider return for his constituents first, period. This is a pressure that pension funds must contend with in ways that some other types of funds just don't, as Henry points out. We had a client that we advised in uh, in the transition to a fossil fuel-free portfolio. 
And this client managed a pension funds and an endowment. So uh, they started with the endowment and everyone was cheering that they were doing that. Then they went to the pension fund and therefore the uh, pensioners said, wait a minute, it's fine for you to go into this fossil fuel free thing in the endowment, not with my money, not with my pension. Uh, so they started having a lot of resistance. Uh, so I imagine you faced this question quite often among the uh, school teachers that you got the pension for, which is, I don't want you to be going out there changing the world. I don't want you being a social agent. I, want, I just want you making my highest return possible. So what are you doing engaging in all of this? So you partly answered that question in the prior discussion, but what else can you tell those people? Great question. And talking to other CIOs, uh, they're seeing those kinds of pressure points too. The sad reality, Henry, is we don't hear from enough. Uh, we hear from, you know, we have a million members. We hear from maybe a hundred, literally, maybe a hundred. Uh, and I'm sure like other public pension plans, you hear from the retirees. I don't hear from the vast majority of my working teachers. Uh, you know, it's neat that we're a teacher-only fund. I really enjoy that facet. You have to think about that for a minute. 72% of my membership is women. They're all college educated, everybody in the plan. Uh, but their passion is teaching and being in the classroom and with the kids. And they think future-oriented, which is great. Um, but they're so focused in on students and things, they're, they're not really very generally, they're not super financial, so we don't hear from them. We, we have a hard time getting a teacher's attention in their 20s and 30s. Uh, by their 50s, they want to talk to us. So I hear from just a really small group, and that's what's hard. We're a trust fund. We have to earn 7% and it has to be focused on the investment decision. I don't want to hand a retiree a check in 2050 and have the earth scorched where the check isn't, you know, life is too expensive to live and, and it's worthless. So I care about that future because I want a sustainable return into the future. So I'm adding that into the equation, uh, but I still need to earn that return. You really have to approach it from that perspective. Your responsibility as a fiduciary to a trust fund, even an endowment, uh, is going to be written in those documents. And you got to focus in on that. In my case, it's written in the California Constitution. I mean, it's written in stone. So the law is pretty clear. This isn't my money. If it's my money, I, I would do something completely different. Um, it's other people's money, and we have to follow the rules that we've been given. So social pressure, totally understand it. I live in a giant fishbowl. I've joked with you, Henry, that's why I used to have hair, but I've rubbed it so much it's all gone. So I understand stress but, uh, and that pressure, but uh, you got to focus in on the main goal. But as other guests on Perspectives have noted, climate change is not all about risk. There are also potential opportunities. Chris had some thoughts about that as well. Uh, the number one thing I would say to, to the audience and to my peers is risk and return. Uh, you got to start with that when you look at any investment. And uh, there are some of the climate change opportunities are going to be very high return, but also very high risk. When you think about some of the venture opportunities, some of the technology, new energy opportunities. And believe me, because we've made money and we've lost money in some of those ventures. But there's also on the other side of the spectrum, there's going to be fairly low risk and stable return opportunities with some of the infrastructure, some of the stuff that could be really boring and not very exciting. So it depends on where you want to put this in your portfolio. So we have a sustainable investment team. So instead of competing with the asset classes, it teams up with the traditional asset classes. 
to help build this out. Hopefully, eventually, it won't be a separate unit. It will be just the way we manage money. Um, but what we recognize is there are some cutting edge technology opportunities. Well, those are going to be venture in that portfolio. Uh, there are some infrastructure opportunities. Those are going to be you know, the lower return. Uh, just like green bonds fit in the portfolio, but also, you know, what we would call sustainable active managers fit in the portfolio. So I'm trying to look at it from a holistic portfolio standpoint, recognize there's a spectrum of opportunities in climate change, risk and return. It always comes back to that, Henry. So when you examine a lot of what you're doing and you talk to others in the industry, what strikes you as uh, the most unappreciated, underappreciated aspects of these opportunities? Uh, I'm not going to give away my secrets, Henry. Come on. (laughs) Um, You know, I think one of the areas, and I don't know there's a lot of return opportunity yet. I really believe there will be, uh, is in the boring area of retooling. Uh, It sounds silly, uh, but uh, some of the massive gains we've had on, on energy efficiency have come from simple technologies. You know, the shift from, from incandescent light bulbs to LEDs. When I look at homes, uh, the, the lack of energy efficiency in any home built before, say, 1990, you're not going to tear them down and rebuild them. But the energy efficiency of a new built home is just mind-blowing. But a few simple retooling things would actually make that very uh, viable. So you're talking about millions and millions of homes. Uh, and so there could be a large, grand-scale very stable return because people aren't going to do massive improvements to their home and pay it in cash. They're going to want to finance it. Changes to the electricity grid. Uh, clearly, we have a problem where we have a lot of hydroelectric power in Canada and in the north. How do you store that and transfer that? Uh, you know, we already have a really volatile electrical system. Energy in California, electricity goes negative in price, not just got drops to zero, but goes negative in the middle of the day because the wind's up and the sun's up. And so they're generating more electricity than they need. But then the price spikes at about eight o'clock when the sun goes down and everybody plugs in. So finding a way, and that might be, you know, uh, chemical, that might be physical to store that energy and, and even out the grid and there's a lot of really bright companies working on that. Again, I don't know that these retooling efforts will be an individual trade, but I think they're going to be an interesting theme that, that some of the big players are going to capitalize on and, and jump all over to make money from it. I have no doubt that the way we live our life, the way we move things around now will look radically different by 2035. Henry, let me share this example with people. So when I say 2035, a lot of people working today are like, that's so far out there. Let me put it this way. Uh, I have a grandson who was born this year. Before he gets out of high school, the world's going to look radically different. The gas stations today are not going to completely disappear, but they're going to be fewer and less needed. The charging stations are going to be everywhere. Um, it will, life will look radically different than we are today, and those are investment opportunities. Some are going to succeed, some will fail. So it's always going to take lots of due diligence to get there. Um, but think about that. And all I can say is, you know, my generation saw the birth of computers. Uh, Gen X, you know, for them, they saw the birth of cell phones. And look how ubiquitous those are and how, you know, we wouldn't be able to work remote without computers and wireless technology. So life changes pretty quickly. Yeah. With us. 
So that frame of reference has actually uh, has been something that I uh, focus on. I have actually started giving up uh, talking about 2050, 2040, 2035, 2030. I have began to... Uh, to talk about 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, because for some reason, when you talk about 2035 or 2030, people think it's a very long time. When you talk about 10 years, it feels like a lot shorter. Yeah, true. You know, the financial crisis, as we know, happened, what, 13 years ago or so. 9-11 happened 20 years ago. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a frame of, of mind, it's a frame of reference that, uh, that will help a great deal. It's interesting as humans how when we look back, it seems like yesterday. When we look forward, it's like, wait, that's way too far out there. And so, you know, time is an even continuum and you're, you hit it right on the head. Uh, when you look back, change is massive and a massive change is coming in 10 years. I like that phrase. I have to tell you, if this conversation had taken place even six months ago, that exchange between Henry and Chris right there, that's your ending. It's profound and a succinct summary that gets right to the heart of the discussion. But this climate change discussion is not over, and there is no tidy ending in any respect to this. So we have an epilogue of sorts today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we are just a few weeks away from the start of COP26, the annual UN climate conference. And as Henry points out, uh, it's a very pivotal year, as you know well, because uh, this happens every year, but every five years, in this case six because of the pandemic, uh, the uh, countries need to replace, you know, their uh, the net zero. And hopefully we can get the world to start competing. We can get countries start competing as to who is going to provide the lowest net zero uh, pledges or, or path to them. But anyhow, uh, you know, when you look at that conference and you look at the agenda, what are the things that excite you the most? What are the things that you, you like to see happen? You know, uh, your expectations will be uh, overblown if they happen, uh, that will achieve, uh, help us achieve more success coming out of that conference. Tough question, Henry, uh, because for me, I guess I've been on Wall Street too long. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than the words. Um, I think we'll be excited to see the pledges. I'm excited by the sheer number of countries that are coming. You need India and China and the USA uh, at the table. Um, and so that's exciting, is to see the world come together. Uh, I would not be surprised, as I said earlier, that if I see them shorten that 2050 to 2045 or somewhere in the 2040s, based on the most recent uh, scientific information, um, and, and I'm sure we're going to hear wonderful pledges, wonderful commitments uh, in 2030, 2040. What's so sad to me is you look at the USA of stepping up to a commitment in, COP, uh, in 2016 and then completely turning its back on it and ignoring it. Um, you know, countries can make bold efforts, but they're not going to mean anything if they become start and stop, start and stop. Uh, and that's why I'm concerned this this has to be a slow, steady transition. If it's, if it's too harsh, uh, then people are gonna overthrow their government and revolt and go back the other way uh, and then come back to their senses a couple of years later. So I think we're gonna hear some really challenging information. I'm pleased to see this, the, the level of seriousness uh, you know, uh, that, that 
Ronald Hanley at State Street, uh, Brian Moynihan, it's got their attention at the highest levels and they're serious about it, uh, which is great. And so I'm optimistic from that standpoint. But what I want to see is that follow through and that consistency, not that we have a come together, exciting moment, you know, make massive commitments uh, and then go away and don't do anything. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Henry and Chris and to all of you for listening. To hear and watch more of Henry and Chris's conversation, visit MSAI.com slash IIC. And next up on Perspectives, we'll continue our look ahead to what we might expect from COP26. We'll speak with COP veteran Gonzalo Munoz, high-level climate champion from Chile at COP25. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.